Dallas Jacobs, thank you very much for coming in today. Thanks for the invite, Jake. It's awesome to have you yeah. on the podcast, finally. It's good to be, good to be here. Uh, I'd love to start with a question. Um, when did you start playing the guitar? Um, when I was 14. 14 years old? 14 years old, yeah. How did you get into it? I think um, um, I was really drawn into the music of um, Carlos Santana when oh, yeah? I was a kid. And uh, I wanted, or, or Eric Clapton and those guys, and I wanted to be a rock and roll guitar player. Mm. <laughs> so, yeah, that was the beginning. And uh, from there, I think it's an interesting road. Um, I'm sure I'm not alone on this. So I started with, the, that was the popular music when I was a kid. And you li you listen to them, and then you li then you read about what who influenced them. You know, like you know Santana would talk about uh, John Coltrane. You know, and Clapton would talk about the great American blues players. And then you would you know dig into Robert Johnson, and then Coltrane and Coltrane and Miles, and then Miles would be influenced by Debussy. And then you go you keep working it back. You know, at least that's how I came into music. Until you know you discover the masters. You know. And, Bach, Beethoven, all those, all those great guys, and you, you know why we're still talking, why we still mention their names, you know, because mm -hmm. they really broke some ground. So that was, it was quite, a, it was a beautiful journey. I mean, I'm still, you know, I think we all kind of tie into the music we grew up with, like when we hit those adolescent years, you know. Yeah. So that's still, you know, I still, I still have all my albums, you know, like the Derek and the Dominoes and the Roll, early Rolling Stones and some Beatles and. Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, all that stuff, because it brings back those times. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't, and, and some of the music was is, I don't know, timeless might be a bit of a stretch, but um, really powerful stuff. You know, at least for me, as I'm sure the kids nowadays will listen to whatever's on the radio now that moved them, that they, their first slow dance with their girl or whatever, yeah. you know, that'll, that'll come back. You know. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um, did you have a musical family, or was this kind of just on your own? You found these artists and kind of went down the rabbit hole. Yeah, well, my, my, um, my dad uh, had a great uh, collection. He was, he was into jazz, kind of like, like uh, soul jazz, I guess is what you'd call it, very soulful stuff, not like the hardcore stuff of, let's say, um, of uh, like Coltrane or whatever. But um, Ramsey Lewis, he was a big fan of. Um, the, what was the guy's name in the Tijuana Brass? Herb Alpert in the Tijuana Brass. And, uh, Herbie Mann, these kind of guys that swung a little bit, that was soulful, you mm -hmm. know? and mm -hmm. uh, and I would listen to that, and then I would, <clears throat> I'd hear Santana covering a tune by Herbie Mann. I go, holy cow, I, I, my dad plays that, <laughs> and then and then my father, so you know, my father was the one that bought the first Santana album. He bought the one like with Evil Ways on it. I don't know, that was his first big hit, and then my father also bought. Um, the first Zeppelin album uh, I heard coming off my dad's stereo, I said, what the? Dad is listening to this? My old man is hipper than me? <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and, you know, and there was a great tune, I, I don't know, Indigata de Vida was the name of the tune, great drum solo by Iron Maiden, Iron Maiden, Iron Butterfly. And uh, so he kind of, you know, I got to give him some credit there, give him some props, as they, at least they used to say, mm -hmm. for opening up that, that door. Um, to me, but he nobody played. Nobody played. My dad didn't play. My mom didn't play. So yeah, from there. Did you um, learn the guitar on your own? Did you have lessons? How did you kind of figure it out? Now you can kind of just go on YouTube and learn how to right. you know, do anything. And I've had a couple of friends that have just self 
educated themselves on playing instruments, but yeah, the YouTube. How, how did it happen for you? Well, I I, tr- I messed around on my own for a while, and then um, I realized I need some lessons, and so I went to a local music store around the corner, and had a, a guy, a real talented a guitar player, who turned me on to jazz and taught me how to play some some jazz chords and some people I should listen to, and then also the stuff I wanted to learn, you know, the rock and roll music. He gave me that, showed me how to make these certain what are called bar chords so you could play wherever you wanted on the neck, and that helped out a, a great deal. And, and there was a guy I went to high school with, old Ron Rodano, who was a phenomenal guitar player, uh, much better than I was at that time, and um, he turned me on to some guys like, um, well, he was into uh, John McLaughlin, who was a uh, the Mahavishnu Orchestra was really big back in the 70s and into the 80s. And um, some other jazz players and um, who I'd never heard of. But I was so impressed by him, by my friend Ron, that, and I wanted to play, I wanted to be as good as him, or if not better. So I listened to these people and it opened up a lot of doors to me. Like, like wow, you know, it's just, it doesn't have to always sound like this. It could sound like this. There's some dissonance in there that I really dig. Mm-hmm. And then he would teach me, like, you know, I said, well, how do you play? Like, how did you just do that? You know, I'd hear, we'd play together. We'd, quote, jam together. And I said, God damn, <laughs> I wouldn't, I don't know how to do that. You know, how did you do that? And then he, he enlightened me on the modes, as they're called, which is like, if you take a, a scale and you start it on the, instead of the first, you start that same group of notes, but you start it on the second. So instead of the key of C, you'd start it at a D, and that'd be the Dorian mode. And it, it gave this kind of really bluesy, minory sound. And, um... So he helped me a lot, and then um, when, when I went off to college, I studied some classical guitar, which helped out a lot, and then, and then I got started getting together with some people that really knew jazz, and, and yeah, opened up a lot of different ways of playing the guitar, not just, you know, your, your rock and roll chords, but like these altered chords, as they're called, where you flat a note, and so it just gives this little uh, like thickness to it. I don't know how to say it. Just like puts another layer on top. You'll know it when you hear it. You're like, whoa, yeah, like, mm-hmm. yeah. So, did you have a kind of a core group of of people that you jammed with growing up, or did that change pretty regularly? And how how did that develop? Well, um, grown up in high school, my my brother. I'm the oldest of four, and my next my next sibling underneath me, my brother Scott, uh, was is less a little less than two years um, younger than me. He played the drums, so that we had a rock band growing up. You know, we called it very—it was a very hip name for the early '70s. Uh, Flight. You know, we're, we're gonna—we I mean, took ourselves so freaking seriously. You know, we were gonna take us take you on a flight. You know, and, but you know, I laugh now, but at the time we were very serious about it. Yeah, like, you know, we take you on a spiritual journey. And uh, so, um, and then there was a group of guys from high school that we got together. Had a band, a bass player, another guitar player. Um, I didn't, I didn't sing as much back then. I wanted just to be the guitar player. And so we had a singer. And uh, yeah, and I've always been in bands from high school and then into college. I got together with different guys and we'd have different types of bands. And then I studied music at college and um, got together with some really fine musicians. And we took, um, took it out like up in New Jersey and in New York City. We did some jazz gigs at some clubs. Um, with some guys, one one guy, Bill Ware, is his name, a vibe player I went to college with, who's professional now. You can go out and buy his records, uh, and yeah. So be, I think, I, I, no matter what you're doing, right? I mean, you you're a great athlete, right? And when you're hanging with guys that um, 
that are just a little bit better than you, mm-hmm. they make you better. Right. Right? right. So if you're playing lacrosse with, a, with some guys that are really making you work, it's taking your game up another notch. And, and the same with music. I said, hang with these guys. I don't want to embarrass myself, and I don't want to pull us down. I, I, better, I better get with it. So you practice more. Yeah, that's the fun part, too, when you're doing something creative is the people around you are like sources of learning, like all great artists steal that quote. It's just kind of being surrounded by people that they're doing something a little bit differently that you can adapt in your own way. Yeah. Just fun. That's the fun part. It's of the it. fun part. And, and also with music, um, like I think all the arts, it, it transcends you, it takes you out of the now, the here and now. Right. So yeah. I get together with a buddy of mine almost every Monday and he comes over to my place and we order out and we get Indian food or whatever. We eat some food, uh, you know, have a drink or whatever, and then uh, we play music for two, three hours. Just play in yeah. my living room. And uh, he's usually the singer. He knows a gazillion songs and from memory. I don't know how the hell he does it. <laughs> and then I, um, I play along with him. I improvise on top of him. And um, we, we would joke around like we're, go- we're going on a trip down to Ganges. You know, we're doing on this spiritual journey because we just get in the moment. And, and I'm not lying, Jake. You know, like two hours have gone like that. You yep. know, and you know, I'm just listening to him play, and I, my eyes are closed almost the whole two hours, and I'm just going off of where he's going, and it's um, it's wonderful. It's a spiritual journey. Yeah, I mean, I, I hope I don't sound too corny, but no. I, but it really, I, you know, I, it really is. Yeah. And I think when we get, no matter what we're doing, whether we're writing or, or a, a poem or something, or doing a painting, and we're in the moment, we forget about time. Yeah, it's the best. Uh, isn't it? I really think that's, that's um, I don't know, I'm, I'm overstating things, but nirvana on earth, if you will. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, I was talking about that on maybe the last podcast or the one before about being in the zone. And we were talking about basketball because that's usually when you hear it in the zone, it has to do with sports. Same um, thing, yeah. Yeah, it's the same thing. You forget about time. You're kind of just operating on the subconscious level. and You get uh, out of your own way. Yeah, you're not you get thinking. out of your own way. I think that's the key. So even in the classroom as a teacher, when you're in the zone, right, and you're just caught and you're feeding off your students' energy and the material that you're getting across, you're in the zone. Mm-hmm. And, and it, it flows. And before you know it, 80 minutes is forever, right? A class. This is a long class period. But it's gone, you know, and it's been a positive thing. And, you you know, for the most part, I mean, the kids are in, every, in there, too. I mean, they fade away. It's just like I would fade away if I was sitting there all the time. Yeah, 80 minutes time three. Was, oh, my goodness gracious. At 15 years old? Yeah. Yeah. Sure. I get it. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. You feel it sometimes in the classroom. Um, it's actually something that I learned through the Penn Fellowship that I did. One of the, like, theories that we learned and discussed is the zone of proximal development, and that's... Yeah. I think that's where the zone terminology comes from, but it's this, I think it is, it has to do with teaching and education and where something fun kind of meets challenge, like Mm -hmm. on the, Mm -hmm. on the grid or on the graph, like something that you're doing that's fun and exciting meets like slightly challenging, slightly out of your expertise or comfort level right, right. is where you kind of hit that zone like if you have you know a classroom of students and you want them to um to learn to learn at their optimal level you have to teach something that's a little bit outside of their yep you just they have to reach them. for it yeah you got to give them the, the the tools that they can 
that they can grasp it. But you know it's going to take a little more creative thought to get there. Mm-hmm. So you, I, get, you know, I always say that in my class, well, not all, but a lot. I say, you got all the tools. You, I told you everything you need to know to do this, mm-hmm. but except how to do it. You know, like you have all the tools there, you know, working on your car, right? And, um, but you have to figure it out. But, and that's the fun part, though. Right. Not, not hearing me tell you how to do it. No. That's no fun. No. It's, uh, what, what kind of an aha moment is that, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, like, the same with music. Like, when I hear stuff that I really like, like, just moves me to tears sometimes. And I, and I want to know. And you think about it. It's just a bunch of vibrations in the air. And it can make and t- trigger an emotion like tears or joy or whatever. That's, that's amazing. Right. And um, so there's a guy, I don't know if anyone out there would know these people, but Eric Dolphy, he's a wonderful, well, he's passed away now since the 60s, I think. Uh, uh, alto or horn, really a reed player, played the um, bass clarinet, played the um, saxophone, played with, my, sorry, with um, Charlie Mingus. And his solos are just so different than anybody else. You, you hear, and I'm not exaggerating, Jake, uh, if, I, if I was to hip you to his sound and then just drop a, the needle on the record now and again, you would know if it was him. Oh, yeah, it's him. The angularity of his solos and whatever, like it's so different than anybody else that's ever played. And um, that's what, don't we all want our voice? I mean, I think we all struggle for our voice, mm-hmm. no matter what it is. And I think as a musician, you know, you, you're influenced. Like, I'm influenced by Carlos Santana, and I'm sure I played a lot, sounded like him when I was a kid, you know, those long sustains and stuff like that. But then eventually you want to be your own self. You mm-hmm. know, I'm not going to play Santana better than Santana plays it, right? right. I want to be Dallas Jacobs, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, but I think maybe at first you have to learn from mimicking just to get a, a feel for it, and then you can kind of riff and make it original. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. You know, you, you take what, you, so you think about it, that moved me that way, right? Yeah. And so then you, you play it so much, and so much is practice and drill, till you get to the point where you're not thinking about it anymore. I don't think about it, I just play it this way. And then, you, then the creative and the improvisation kicks in, because you're not thinking anymore. Mm-hmm. You turn the brain off. Like when you're in the zone, like I, I was a track runner, so zone meant like being able to push pain out of your head, because your body was dying and you still had another mile to run or whatever but um so the zone was is in, in like in basketball would be like not thinking about the ball going in or the noise around you or the audience it's like you're just seeing it through the net you know i would imagine you know other yep. than you know pick up basketball games i never did anything more serious about with that sport but anyway yeah you can you can hit the zone in anything yeah 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 so like in the classroom we were talking about where you're where you just get with that chemistry. And that's what we were talking before that we turned the mics on about the Zoom classes and the hybrid classes. That that was gone when you put it on a screen. Mm-hmm. That, that, that energy between two human beings like us here in the room right now is gone. Mm-hmm. I, this conversation would sound so different if you were not just sitting across the table from me yep. and we're talking through a TV screen. It'd be different. We would not, wouldn't have this same conversation. Yeah, I find doing the podcast with someone in front of me because we've done a couple on Zoom this year and last year. People couldn't make it in or we're maybe talking to someone, you know, in a different area. And, you know, I like I like doing those episodes, but I much prefer to be in front of someone to be able to just feel their emotions and their energy a little bit. And you just get more of a experience um, 
like face to face. It's yeah. There's no comparison. There's that those that I don't know what it is that the biology between us, the energy, and I really I don't I think there's truth to that. There's there energy. Yes. There's an energy between human beings. You know, if you were when you you meet your your, your romantic love, there's energy there. It's mm-hmm. not just appearance or what's what she's saying. It's there's energy going on. You mm-hmm. Know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What uh, what's been the most spiritual or transcendent experience with music that you think you've had? Wow, that's a that's a tough question. Tough question, but um, there's a lot of them. Um, I guess um, musically for me, playing sometimes like um, well, I don't know if I could rate them, but like you know, uh, Justin Baker, um, great, I mean, great teacher, but also a great songwriter, and playing along with him. Um, is kind of gets me in that zone too. I really enjoy his his music and his his lyrics kind of pull me in. So there, those those kind of moments. And um, I've been I've been to some shows. Um, going back to like I guess well, how old where was I then college? But uh, this guy John McLaughlin we were just talking about in his band the Mahavishnu Orchestra played in New Jersey in Paramus, New Jersey, at the, at the Capitol Theater, which probably isn't even there anymore, a dumpy little concert hall, and he just lit the place up. There was just so much energy. It's all, it was all electric with these, like back in those days, like those walls of amps, mm-hmm. you know, like, like Hendrix or whatever. So it's just, it's like you're getting smacked physically with the music. And I just remember leaving the joint and like humming the, the solos in my head, which are these really quick machine gun kind of rhythm, like an Indian kind of a rhythm in his solos. And uh, it just humming the whole way home because mm-hmm. it was just like in every, you know, cell of my body had been invaded by this. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. So that would rank up. I'm there sure you've too. had so many that it's hard to. Yeah, it's it's a combination of um, I think most of the real ones that that touch your heart are the ones that that you participate in, you know, because yeah. you're there in the moment. But there's been a few, you know, where you're just in the audience and you're just like, wow, this is wonderful. This, well, yeah. Well, can you say more about that on the other side? Because I've never played an instrument really, so I don't really know what that's like to be in front of a crowd and like feeling their energy and being able to provide the experience for everyone else, what that, what that is like for you? Well, if you feed on it, to be honest, you know, I think, I, I think I am a bit of a ham at that. And I think probably all performers are a little bit. And um, you want them to enjoy themselves. You know, you got to remember that, that the, and the audience wants to enjoy. They, they want to like you, you know. So when people get nervous, they say, listen, man, they want to love it. They don't want you to screw up. They want you to entertain them, man. Mm-hmm. So don't worry so much. They're, they're on your team. They're on your side. Yeah. Right? They just paid money so to hear you. So you do your job now. But um, but you, when when you're with musicians that you've played with for a while, and there's like all this nonverbal communication that just clicks. Man, those are great moments. Yeah. You know? a lot. I mean, a lot like in athletics when you're with a group of guys that you're on a team and after the game you just you just sit and you shoot the breeze about the game right and it's like it's that energy that you just shared with these people mm-hmm. that was a great moment or man i couldn't believe i screwed that up but you got my you covered me you know <laughs> or like in music too you know like I, i'll i'll screw up and and hit the wrong group of notes or whatever and the other guys will, will go with it so it sounds like it was meant to happen you know and those are yeah that's you know do you, do you typically get nervous to play in front of a group of people you know um 
not in the very beginning i think when you first step on the stage it's a little bit of that but once you get going it's fine you know you, you're you're in the moment and you're playing the music you're enjoying yourself and uh and you and after you hit you know finish your first tune or whatever and the crowd seems to like you you know that's that helps and you say all right we got them we got them man it gets us keep going with it now mm-hmm. you know yeah i um been to a few concerts out at Red Rocks in oh. Colorado, and I'd have to say, I saw um, I was out there in Colorado one time, and I saw Florence and the Machine, this this band. Uh, Dog Days are, are over is their favorite or their most famous song, but right, right. they've had a few hits, and I wasn't really a fan of them before going, but I just think that outdoor venue oh, and beautiful. you know the. I don't know the vibrations off the rocks very natural yeah surroundings that was a really cool experience for me out I, there my, my daughter just moved to uh, to denver gosh when was it december of uh, this past december and so i went out to visit her in march and uh during our spring break and uh as for i went to red rocks for the very first time wow what a great venue mm-hmm. my goodness gracious that must have been beautiful you know yeah. like the surroundings and i know i didn't hear a band there we just hiked around in those mountains up there but the sound must be amazing, bouncing off those rocks and just engulfing you in that little alcove of rock. You yeah. know, you're in that little cusp. Yeah. Um, you go up, people work out there. They run those stairs. So you walk up those steps there and you're out of breath. Tell me about it. I yeah. was. Plus, I wasn't <laughs> used to the altitude yet. So, you know, my, my daughter was kicking my butt, you know, who, who never ran. <laughs> so, and dad was his serious runner for so long. She said, come on, old man, let's go. Keep up. <laughs> How does she like it out there? She likes it. Um, she was in, in Chicago for a while, and then um, a, move, a friend of hers from college, old buddy, this is when they're doing the remote, working remotely, so so why don't you come out here and live with me for a little while and, um, and see what you think of Denver. And so she did, and she likes it. Yeah. So her job is allowing her to continue to work remotely from Denver. That's great. Yeah. yeah. Some of those jobs where you can just kind of go wherever you want and... Yeah, pull up the laptop, just get a Wi-Fi signal, and I'm good to go. I know. It's, it's, wow, times have changed, man. I mean, she's in uh, PR and advertising now, so she still goes like to like commercial shoots. Like they'll they'll wrap up some whatever. Like I know they're dealing with Chevy trucks, so they'll dr- wherever the L.A. I think was her most recent trip, and so she'll be with the people at the shoots, like the people she works with. But um, other than that, she doesn't really see them in person anymore, like she used to when yeah. she was in Chicago. Which she doesn't like so much. You know, we're talking about being in person, you know, versus screen stuff. So that's kind of a negative, you know. Yeah. But, um, but she loves the surroundings of Denver. Yeah, I mean, there's something to, like, getting up every morning, going to a place where you see people and can kind of just talk to your colleagues. And that's, I think that's what I was missing the most last year and the year before during COVID. And almost why I... Chesre and I started the podcast is because, you know, I would teach my classes in the morning and then the afternoon was pretty open. Like sometimes we would have assembly right. virtually, but yeah. other than yeah. that, it was very open in the afternoons. I was like, what, a, what else is there to do? Let's, let's talk to some people here. And what a great idea though. Yeah. It's been yeah. fun. I bet it has gotten to know a lot of the faculty and the teachers and coaches here, which and you have a wide assortment. I've looked at some of the people, like some uh, people like Sherm Bristow you just had the other day, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And then some of the new teachers. And then uh, who else did I see recently? AJ came back in. You know? AJ came back in. Yeah. Fellow Jersey guy. And uh, yeah, 
I like it. It was good for you. Thank you for doing it. Oh, yeah, of course. Thanks for coming in. Yeah. It's, it's been fun. Cesare does all the heavy lifting. I just Cesare's kinda... amazing, yeah, isn't just... he? He's done so much work for me over the years, man. Like, Cesare, do you know how to do this? Yeah, I think I could figure it out if I don't. <laughs> I like that spirit that guy has, yeah, right? Yeah, for sure. Do you, um, do you bring any music into your math classroom at all? Do you ever incorporate what you do um, and, well, outside with, with your... I guess, subject that you teach? Well, we talk, I mean, just superficially about like, you know, um, for example, you know, if you, you you have a melody to a song and it's in the key of C, you know, but you can't sing it in the key of C, it's too high for you or whatever. So you, quote, transpose it to a different key, but the melody stays the same, it's just lower. So in math, you know, you have a curve <clears throat> and you can move the curve up or down, you know, depending on what you're like, I don't want to get too mathematical here, but it's basically the curve looks the same. It's just placed differently on the axes. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense at all? So, I mean, that, that and that, which is kind of a superficial uh, analogy, but also um, when I do some of the Islamic designs in the past years, I've, I've put on some uh, Islamic music, you know, an oud player or whatever, hmm. you know, to get, I don't know, get in the, in the mood, if you will. Yeah. You know? well, background music. Yeah. Yeah, and there's um, we should probably bring more in. There's a like they always say like Mozart is is good to listen to when you're doing math. I don't know what, exactly why, but uh, yeah, I'll give it a go. Hmm. Some of these guys could use the help. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I play music in my class every every single day. You really? I do. Like yeah. when they're walking in. Well, yes. I have this little speaker that's you know this big. Right, so it right. Fits you know it's easy to carry around, and I like just starting the class with some kind of question um, that's related to whatever we're reading, related to the students a little bit so that they can reflect on themselves. Or yeah. Usually it's a tricky question or a kind of a deep thinking question to uh, start the class. But as they're thinking about it and writing in their journals, got to play a little music. And is it instrumental music then? Or is it, uh, is it of lyrics? Is it a song? or Usually a song or two. Yeah. I mean, I'm... Could play some instrumental or some classical music, but usually just play what's on my playlist at the time. I got it. I got it. Um, I, I'm see my ears are so active. I'd probably be listening to your tune more than thinking. You know. Yeah, that's true. Be. I think it's hard to do work or do work with your mind where you're actually thinking with lyrical music happening. Just I find it very difficult. Like if I'm grading papers, which can be you know mind numbing, you know, and then uh, but if I had a, if I am listening to I don't know Bob Dylan, I'm listening to the lyrics. I'm not grading the. I mean, it takes me twice as long to grade the paper, you know, because I'm going, oh yeah, wow, that's a great a lyric he just wrote. Oh wait a minute, right? So x equals five, right? No. Yeah. <laughs> You'd figure it'd be a little bit easier with math than it would be with like reading or writing, like grading essays. Yeah, I don't know. We, the we words know. get jumbled. Right, right. Well, you know, in, in geometry, for example, you, I'm grading a lot of proofs, and that's a, you got to follow. So the student quite often will not follow my logic, right? So I got to look at their way they're, they're going about doing the proof to see if it's valid or not. You know, they might take twice as long as I <laughs> would hope they would take, but it still might be legit, you know. Or looking at, um, especially like, in, like a calculus class, how are they figuring the answer out? Is the answer wrong because they did arithmetic mistake or is it a conceptual mistake? So mm -hmm. you really gotta dig in to what's going on and their handwriting isn't always the neatest and uh, the organization skills have some to be desired, but so it takes a little extra effort. Oh man, you 
got him handwriting. Handwriting is no longer. I feel like I well, can't with even math. I can't imagine doing all that on a computer. That's yeah. all that symbolic, you know, notation. That'd be very time consuming. I don't yeah. Know. Man, geometry. What I remember about geometry, I remember proofs, and we had a little booklet of you know where we had to handwrite our proofs in. Proofs in. I think the most important thing that I learned in geometry, I was in geometry with like two or three of my good friends. They're very good at math, very smart guys and just like great at math. And I was never that talented with math, just didn't click. Right, right. I would have to go to the uh, the math workshop. Whatever. Math tutor. <laughs> she sat in a room like this. I'd go to her every day just to get some extra help. But what I learned in that class is like I would work my ass off on math all week. And I still wouldn't get the same grades that my two or three friends would because they were just naturally good at it. And I think the biggest lesson from geometry was that I can't compare myself to other people. That's even a better lesson than what geometry would have taught you. I mean, yeah. Because I I would always come home furious. I think my mom was like, you just can't compare yourself to these guys Mm -hmm. because it's it's not the way your brain operates. Isn't that interesting, though? I find that fascinating that, you know, you have your gifts and I have mine. And, 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 but, um, and we're good at whatever those strengths are, but um, we can't be good at everything. It's just, I don't know enough about the brain of why that is. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. What clicks? Is it all what we grew up with? I mean, you hear stories of people that grew up um, with no real f- formal education that are geniuses. You know, they're just blessed with a mind that can quickly comprehends these more complex ideas like how the hell do you do that without a teacher right right it's like goodwill hunting he's uh figuring out the math equations on the wall right i think he actually has a there's a really good line in that movie it's like um uh, beethoven could just play the piano and i could just understand math that's just the way it is yeah remember yeah i do remember and i i find that really interesting well, you know, and uh, or or can draw like I have a kid, um, a student that always opens up every class and he's drawing in his in his little notebook, you know, his art book, and beautiful re- reproductions of the masters, right? Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't even know where to begin. I don't even know how you how do you get that perspective? Perspective? How do you make it look like that? It's just I, I don't know. It's talent. It is. It's and and it, and maybe um, is it inter- is it is I always wondered if it's is it the talent that that pushes it certain certain degree or areas, or is it an interest that develops the talent? You know, like, do you know what I mean? Like chicken or the egg first? Yeah. Like, is, is it that I love art, vi- visual art, and that pushes me to be more curious about it and how to do it, or is it that I've God or whoever has blessed me with this ability and I'm drawn there? Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, like a Picasso who could apparently draw like reproductions as a little kid right. of the great masters, right? So obviously he had some ability that he was blessed with. and um, Well, that's the uh, role of teachers, I think, to some degree, at least in my experiences. The best teachers I had were the ones that could identify what I was good at. And when they told me that at a young age, like, you're good at this, then it fuels your interest a little bit more. It's like, yeah. oh, I don't know what I'm good at. Like, I just get trying to, you know show up and yeah do what people are telling me to do i don't know anything but if a teacher says hey you're pretty good at that then you might at you might develop some interest for it to continue yeah well we always like to be good right and um at whatever we are doing and i think you're right on that you know that 
you want, I do that as well, walking around the room and you, you say, that's, uh, you, that's pretty good. Yeah, I gotta say, like the way you thought of that, that's great. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's different, it's creative. I mean, that's what it's all about, being curious, I think. Mm-hmm. And that's all I want with my kids. That's all I want out of life, is I'm curious about things. I wanna know stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe too much stuff, you know, maybe if I'm more focused, I'd be better off, but anyway. <laughs> um, how did you uh, how did you get into math? When did you first know that you enjoyed math? I was always good at math. I mean, it was going back to what we just were saying, and uh, it kind of came easy and quick to me. Yeah. Um, and then, um, and I was always a slow reader, right? So I thought I, when I went to college, I thought I wanted to be a lawyer, right? I think I just said that to give them something to write on the letter, my application or whatever, and. Um, <laughs> But when I realized when they gave me the stack of books that I'd have to read, you know, to take the courses that I was going to do, I said, oh, you want me to read that like in two weeks? Yeah, I don't think I can do this. <laughs> so, and in math, I always felt like with math, all I have to do is think. I just have to think. Just bring my brain along. You tell me the rules of the game, and I have to think, and I'll, I'll solve whatever you need me to solve, you know. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and, but I gotta be to be honest. Um, I, it's music that really my, is my passion. Though I just find that it's it's mathematics uh, um, in vibration form is is music. You what know? do you mean? Like so much of music is is mathematical. You know the the way things are structured. But it's I find it a beautiful mathematics. You know, um, it's like but by the way that the notes that I'm combining that I get these beautiful chords, you know, or these intervals that I'm jumping in, it's giving me this interesting melody, you know. So you, I mean, and I don't mean to. It, I, when I play music, I don't reduce things to numbers, but um, that's really what's going down. Well, know? there's a structure to music and layers to it. Yeah, yeah. Like dimensions, I guess you would say. And kind of like what you were saying about like pushing to the next level, right? So um, I'm sure I'm not, this is an original thought, but you know, you know, you learn the rules and then you break them. Right. And it's when you break the rules that you come up with the interesting music. But you have to know the rules you first. You have to know the rules first, you know? And like guys like um, Thelonious Monk, the great jazz piano player and composer, he broke the rules, a lot of dissonance in there, but you know exactly where he's going. It's just the blues. It's yeah. just the blues. One, four, five. Everyone's been doing it for God knows how long. But he makes it interesting because of the way the notes he chooses and the rhythm he chooses. And uh, Jimi Hendrix. Oh, Hendrix. Brilliant. The electric guitar is, was shattered when he came around. He just opened up the door wide. No one ever played like that. And, and I think today, no one's really playing as, as well as he did on the electric guitar. Hmm. You know, there's a lot of imitators and what have you. And now we have a lot of more gizmos that kids, people can use you know, to make their guitar sound different. Um, but yeah, he's brilliant. And dead at 29, right? Hmm. Was it Hendrix died, I think, at 29? 27? Oh, 27? Okay, late 20s, I knew. I couldn't remember. I think the a lot of his artists died at 27, like 27 Club. Is that what it was? Yeah, yeah. I think... Um, was Jim Morrison around there? Jim Morrison? Uh, maybe. Um, I can't remember. He was 23? No, no. 30? He 30. was 30? Yeah, okay. Um, yeah. Jan- uh, Janis, Joplin Janis Joplin was 27, Joplin. I think. Great voice, amazing voice. So was soul in that voice, a lot of pain in that voice. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Hmm. How about some... Ar- um, some concerts that you've seen that have uh, really impacted you or 
really memorable for you? I saw um, there's a guy, um, Nino Josele. He's a, from Spain as a flamenco player, guitar player, and but he um, incorporating jazz now. He's kind of like flowing into to jazz. And I love flamenco music. I love the passion when, when they play and they sing and they dance. Have you ever been to a flamenco show? A good one, an authentic one, you just can't help but be pulled into it. Hmm. What, is, what is flamenco? So it's a, a I guess it will, in Spain, uh, it's um, gypsies uh, in Spain, and it's, um, it's there, the, they were the poor, and they still are of that area, and, and so much soul in their music, talking about their pain. Garcia Lorca, you know, would you like, was a, a flamenco poet, I would call him. And um, so flamenco is, is really focused on the singer, the, and, and the guitar player just accompanies him. But nowadays, guitar being so popular in the West, is, well, all around the world, I think, the guitar players are now becoming more and more well-known, like Paco de Lucia, who passed away a few years ago, and a guy named Tomo Tito, and um, they can just rip up the guitar. They can just play it amazing with their fingers, no guitar pick, no amplifiers, and they just you know, can capture so much emotion. So he, Nino Josele, uh, is a great flamenco player, but he's now playing with jazz people and doing jazz standards in a flamenco style. And I remember seeing him at the Village Gate, I'm uh, sorry, Village Vanguard up in New York, and just pulled in by the, the, him as a person, you know, again, like being in person with somebody. He had such a serenity about him and so peaceful, but when he put the guitar in his hands, it just there was energy that just poured right through him. And it was him and a, a bass player and a drummer, just a trio, and just the way, just all those, just those three people was able to, as I have it in an orchestra, and, I, and I'm not exaggerating, there's just so many layers to their music. And I just, I remember his English was pretty poor, and I remember meeting him in between sets and just saying, man, that was, wow, that was beautiful. I just want to say thank you. And uh, I really appreciate all the, all that goes into that. And he goes, he, he thanked me for saying it that way, he said, because people don't realize the amount of effort that goes into getting there, to getting to that level where you can transcend the music and you're caught in the moment and you, and it looks like it's a piece of cake to everybody in the audience, but it is not a piece of cake. You don't get there overnight, you know? Mm -hmm. So um, that was a great evening. That was a wonderful evening. So Nino Hosele was wonderful. Um, gosh, a lot of them. Uh, down, there's a club down in Baltimore called the Keystone Corner. I don't know if you've ever been there. Mm -mm. It's down at what do they call it, Harbor East. Oh, yeah? Yeah, near, near Cingales, the Italian restaurant on the yeah. waterfront there. Next block over. And uh, they, great. They get A-list people, play, people that you'd spend twice as much to see them in New York. And uh, there was a guy, Bill Frizzell, who's pretty popular now, a jazz guitar player, electric player, who um, uses a lot of... Uh, Electric, electronics and um, what's the word I'm looking for where they record and play on top of it um, I'm blanking on the word right now but um, he was another player that, that could capture so much with just one person just him laying down a track recording it and then putting another one on top of it and, and building a, 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 like that kind of a or just with one guitar building a whole five layer chocolate cake if you will you know of music <laughs> and uh, just yeah and he's another one that, that um, I don't know if it's always this way. Obviously, a lot of musicians aren't this way. But um, another real peaceful person that can, has so much energy in his music. Hmm. I mean, that's, I've met plenty of musicians that are wild and crazy and you know, not all that you know, 
functional, but um, the, the, the really good ones, the, good, the ones that, that sustain it, are, have a peacefulness about them, I think. Hmm. So. Do, you, uh, do you have like a, how do you listen to music? Like, do, you, do you put headphones on or do you have a player at your house or do you like going to live shows? Like what is your relationship, I guess, to listening to music? Uh, l- nothing beats live. You yeah, know, again, tie, tying into like the whole teaching thing. Nothing beats live and in person. Yeah. So I don't know about you, but quite often I've been to shows and I'll buy the CD. You know, after the show. Nowadays we all stream things, but but you'd buy the record, right? And you'd get home and it's like, oh man, that's disappointing, man. Yeah. Because it was the moment that that was what pulled you in. You know, that just being there live and listening to them to do it. But then when you go home and you plop it on and you're just sitting in your living room and it's like you have your cup of coffee or you're eating your sandwich and you go. Uh, it's okay. <laughs> no, not the same. It's not the same. No way. Um, so I still have, I mean, I, I guess they're in right now, you know, albums. So I still have a big wall of records and a turntable in my house and, um, and then a whole bunch of CDs. But nowadays I think I'm probably no different than most people. I'll, I'll just stream it. Yeah. Know? And listen to it. And I try to listen into it loud so it blocks out everything else. <laughs> Because yep. I don't want anything else intruding, like my what I should be doing. You know, I want to be in the moment with the music. Yeah. Yeah, you need the noise-canceling headphones. Yeah, maybe I should. I, but I think I would be nervous about, you know, I don't know, I'm getting neurotic here. Like someone breaking in my place when I have these phones on. Yeah, that's true. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm grooving out <laughs> to Miles Davis and someone's stealing my good guitar in the other room. <laughs> that is true. Um so you read some poetry, and you've got a book recommendation for us. Today. Yeah, yeah, I love poetry. I love the, um, you know, the way that they can capture, um, you know, going back to the mathematics of the proofs and what have you. That uh, you can say something really powerful and elegant in just a short few lines. I find that genius. You know, some of the great poems, um, and then. Um, the, the book that I, one of the books I really love, when, when Jake, when you asked me about that and I thought about it, um, the, the contenders were um, Reservation Blues by Sherman Alexa, which is a, a great story. It's about a, a rock and roll band on a reservation out in, uh, I guess, Washington State. And uh, they, um, it's the old story of selling your soul to the devil, you know, mm-hmm. like Robert Johnson, you know. And uh, they become popular and famous and they travel around the world. But the devil owns you, right? So they're trying to run away from the devil, but every time they he, they start to play, the devil hears the music because he gave them the guitar that the guy's using. So he finds them and starts to haunt them. So it's funny. Um, it's very moving. It talks a lot about um, music and about um, uh, pulling yourself out of a, this really desperate situation these people grew up in on the reservation. A uh, lot of layers to it. So that was one. And, and then the other one, though, that I really... It's touched me for a while now. Is this book called *The Unbearable Lightness of Being* by the Czech writer Milan Kundera? And you know, it's it's a love story basically. But inside that love story is is like um, what we, things we all wrestle about about with life and um, what it means and uh, you know how to live a good one. And um, it, the title refers to the, the unbearable lightness of being refers to like how. We live a life and we, we, we come to a crossroads and we have to make a decision and we make a decision, right? And then, so, but we only go, th- think of an artist, like you only draw that line once. You can't go back over it or you can't go the other way anymore. You went that way. So it's a very light line. It's not been drawn over. It's not heavy, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, 
how that how that shapes us. The, it's unbearably light, you know. And the story goes on again. It's it's a love story between this man named Tomas and um, uh, his young love. Well, they're about the same time age, I guess. Teresa, who he meets, and then another. It's like a three people, and Sabina, his other f- former lover. And um, it comes out near the end of the book that to, to get meaning in life, it, it's there has to be commitment, and and that's that's where at least that's my interpretation on it. So this, there's a lightness to it, you know. I just go through this, and um, if I may, I know we're this PG here, but um, so Tomas is, you know, a bit of a womanizer, and um, uh, like a sworn bachelor. But he meets this woman Teresa, and he falls in love with Teresa, and you can't have it both ways, you know. If you're in, and um, he realizes that eventually, that his love for Teresa gives meaning to his life. All of a sudden, you know, there's a, there's some purpose to things which he was lacking. You know, mm-hmm. and um, I really recommend the book. It's a beautiful, beautifully written uh, book, and um, I think if and I read it slow. If you when you read it, read it slow. I always I had to go back and read a lot of these pages or chapters a couple of times. I mean, the man is a philosopher, so it's pretty packed yeah. with thought. You know, and then I would recommend the movie, um, which stars Daniel Day Lewis and uh, J- Juliette Binoche. And I forget in the third woman, she's Norwegian, Scandinavian of some kind. The one that the woman that plays Sabina. So the movie is as good as the book, or th- up there? It's up there. Yeah, I think you should read the book to get all the nuances of the philosophy. I mean, he quotes Nietzsche in it. Mm-hmm. You know, um, uh, he, he talks about um, different cultures and the way that they look at life. You know, and so which which he they deal with a little bit in the movie, but like cursory, like they mention Nietzsche. You know, but they don't. They don't have a couple of pages on his philosophy in there in the movie. Yeah, that's what I, that's one thing I remember. I read this book a while ago, and I think some of it went over my my head at the time. It went away over. I, I have to go back. It's like I said, this is like the multiple times I yeah. read it, and I always pick up something new. It's, it's pretty dense, but I do remember the um, allusions in there to different philosophers, and I think that's part of what I couldn't. I didn't really know some of Nietzsche's philosophies, and yeah. you, you miss some of that stuff you in do. this book. Yeah, and so you have to go back and read it, and then I'll, and I'll talk to people that are smarter than me on these fields, and I'll say, "Can you? Is th- am I interpreting Nietzsche right? Is this what he meant? You know, that kind of thing. Right. Or what does this saying mean to you? You know, like they talk a lot about kitsch, like things that are kitschy, and I have my interpretation being an American, uh, what that means, and, and uh, he uses it, Milan Kundera uses it quite often in the book, and I think he means more, it's a superficial thing, which I, that's how I look at it as well, and popular stuff, and that it's light, it's light, it, there's no meaning to it, it's like, you know, when you go into the store and they're playing that music in the background, it's like, there's, why bother, mm-hmm. why doing that, why are you cluttering up my mind with this nonsense, you know, mm-hmm. and that's what comes across in the book, like, we don't need that, we don't need those distractions, let me just be here now, you know? Yeah. Um, so what uh, what does it get to? Like, what is the core of the the book? Like, what is um, what is it really all about in, in inside of these relationships that are happening in the, in the main character, I guess, Tomas? Tomas, yeah. Some of the kitsch, like, what, what, what is central to it? Well, I think he wants to live a life that's light and without responsibility. He likes that. He likes um, just flow, going with the flow. And, and he and he thinks that's that's fine because life is is light, you know. I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna I'm gonna be with this woman, and um, and then I'm gonna leave her, you know. I'm gonna move on, 
or I'm going to do my job and I'm, and I'm going to move on. Or the, it takes place in the late 60s in Czechoslovakia when the, up, the revolution occurs and the Russians come in and try to suppress it. And he tries to stay afloat above it, and he can't. Mm. He can't. Because he writes a letter comparing the, the, the communists, I can't remember what now, but he gets blacklisted all of a sudden, and he, he can't practice medicine. They, say, they tell him, they say, you listen, you're very talented, we hate to lose you, but you need to write this letter saying that you didn't mean that, and you apologize. He goes, no, I'm not going to do that, because I did mean it. And they take away his, his, right, you know, his license to practice medicine. So all of a sudden, it's not light anymore. You know, there's mm. consequences to your actions, right? Yeah. And he, this woman, Teresa, that he falls in love with, she can't be with him anymore because he's always fooling around, and he's, she leaves. And he realizes that I, I don't want to lose her. So all of a sudden, my actions have meaning, have, have consequences, and I, I need to be mindful of them. You know, it's, I think he realizes it's a selfish life, you know. And, and I know we have to think of ourselves, but, um, but so do other people. And when you're hurting them, they're not going to stick around, you know. It's interesting, and it's interesting that there's a dog on the on the front of the. Cover. Yeah, the dog is what pulled them together. It's, um, Mephisto is what they call. Oh, no, Mephisto is the pig that the, that the their friend has. I can't remember the name of the dog, but it's a it's a it's a you know it's a mutt. It's a stray dog that they adopt, mm-hmm. and it kind of pulls them together. You know that, that it's something that they both love. Hmm. You know. Yeah, I was going to say, I teach this short story by Chekhov, and I teach a short fiction class. The Lady with this Toy Dog? The Lady I with love the Toy that Dog. Book story, I mean. And it's very similar, I think, because the main character in that story, I think his name's Dimitri, maybe. Uh-huh, Dimitri, uh-huh. he's a womanizer, yes, and he's yes. never really had a serious relationship before. And he sees this woman in uh, Moscow, God, maybe. Yalta. Yalta. Yeah. She's this woman, Anna, in yep. Yalta, and she has a dog. And all of a sudden they, they start, start dating. Flirting, and, yeah. And it gets deeper, and it gets to be true love, I guess, because he's reminded of her. He can't stop thinking about her. Yeah. He travels to go see her in her hometown. And, yeah, it seems very similar. It reminded me right away when yeah. you started talking about it's those. It's funny that you mentioned that because that's one of my favorite stories. And uh, there's that's a movie as well, um, the, the Woman with the Little Dog, I think is what it's called. And it's uh, Marcello Mastriani, the famous Italian actor, stars in it. And I can't remember the woman that plays um, Anna. But that's worth seeing, too. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So. Chekhov. I love Chekhov. Yeah. I, I, his story, I don't, I've never read anything but his short stories, so I don't know if his... And, well, have I read his plays? What's the name of the famous play? Seagull. Or is it Seagull? Seagull's one of them. I thought there was another one that I've... I'm escaping my mind now. There is. Uncle Vanya, is that a checkoff? Um, yes. Okay. I think that's what I, I read and saw performed once. Yeah. Hmm. Awesome. Well, um, and then the other thing I wanted to talk to you about a little bit is your travels and some of the trips that you've been on, whether through Gilman or just on your own. Um, I think Cesare was telling me you've been to Morocco before. Yeah. Yeah. So way back. So in the early 80s, I... Um, when I started teaching, I was in Eastside High in Newark, New Jersey, and um, and then I had the, the travel bug, and I wanted to, to travel, and I but I didn't want to be a tourist. I wanted to be like part of the community kind of thing. So I got a job, I got a gig work and teaching in Algeria, in North Africa, and um, it was at the El Paso Natural Gas Company building a pipeline out of the Sahara to the Mediterranean coast, and then they put the natural gas on tankers and shipped it to Italy, and then through Europe. So I taught the dependents of the folks that worked on the pipeline. 
And uh, we were on the coast. We were near the city of Oran in Algeria, which another literary um, reference. That's the, where the story, the plague, takes place by Camus. Yeah. It takes place in Oran. He was, was Pied Noir was what he was, which uh, meant Blackfoot. He was a Frenchman born in Algeria. But anyway, that got me the, the, the bug of that area of, um, of the world. And so we traveled to Morocco quite often because it was um, a lot nicer than Algeria. Algeria was still just recovering from that war with France. And, um, and Morocco was more geared to tourists, you know, nicer hotels, better restaurants. So we'd go into Morocco all the time. Anyway, after then, I went on to Belgium and lived in Belgium for a bit and taught in, um, in uh, Brussels and then back to the States. But, um, <coughs> excuse me. but on my sabbatical, I went to, to Morocco, and that's where Cesare helped me put together this uh, presentation I did after that. And then um, in Spain, traveled through southern Spain, Sevilla and uh, Granada, which is one of my favorite places in the world. Granada. Yeah. What's I mean, that place like? So that's where the Alhambra is, the famous, um, I don't know, fort or castle, really, when the, when the um, uh, Muslims ruled Spain. And it's a beautiful, beautiful place. And, uh, and it just, it's a medieval town. The whole town is, you know, these little tiny streets, you know, alleyways, really, but they drive cars down. And, um, and then from there to Sevilla. And then um, from Sevilla, I went up to Madrid and then spent a little time there and then flew home. But southern Spain, I really dug. Hmm. A lot. And that was all connected to the Islamic art. You know, Gilman was very generous and, and paid for me to do this sabbatical. And so I spent time in Morocco and in southern Spain. Um, and then back in the States, I did some travels to New York City, to the museums in New York and in D.C. to do research on Islamic art. Why Islamic art? Where did that interest come from? Boy, you know, Jake, you know, I think I first experienced it when I was in... Um, Algeria, and I went to Morocco. Yeah, and uh, there's a town in Morocco called Fez, which is um like those hats, you know, those little red hats. That's where the name comes from. And there's um the the old part of town, the Medina in Fez, is kind of like the the spiritual capital of Morocco. You know, Rabat is the political capital, and Casablanca is the big city, but Fez is like the spiritual capital. And, I would, and we went into some of these um, schools, these madrasas, which are these um, Islamic schools, and I just got sucked in. I don't know. It trans- I don't know what the words are. I don't know why. But it just I loved being surrounded by those tiles and those mosaics. It just really made me feel good. And um, so I never, it, I had the bite from y- then unique on. Unique colors, right? It's like, I've seen pictures of like very light blue colors and... And greens. And greens. Um, green is very popular. Apparently, according to what I've read over the years, is that, um, you know, um, Islam is uh, originated in the deserts of Saudi Arabia, what's now Saudi Arabia. Not a lot of green going on there, right? Mm-hmm. And so green meant an oasis. And so thus the, the attraction to green, you mm. know, thinking of... Of, of, of Islam as, as an oasis from the troubles of the world. And, um, and so when I, and I've always been drawn to it. I've, I used to I'd do this back in New Jersey before I came down here to Baltimore. I would use this idea as in my classes. And um, the, when I qualified for the sabbatical, I said, I got to go do this. Who else is going to drop me 10 grand and let me go do what I want for six months, you know? Yeah. So um, I did. Wow. You know? yeah. Special. Yeah. I felt very fortunate. Yeah. Yeah. Lucky. I'm uh I'm gonna go to I got a luckily got a grant for this summer to go over to, to Paris and to nice. Spain, to Pompelon of Spain and look at some lost generation writers this summer. Okay. You're gonna, you're gonna run with the bulls? 
I'm missing that by a little bit, but okay. it would, it would you would have. You would have. I, I, what I know Maybe. about you, you would have. <laughs> uh, Zealand was trying to push me in that direction uh-huh. a little bit, but training with you out there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but he's the source for all things Spain. He knows what he's doing over there. Yeah, yeah. Matt, he sure does. He, yeah. I love listening to him speak Spanish. He has that kind of Spanish um, accent to him, not like right. that. Yeah, you know, real rich and regal kind of accent yeah he does and i and i um i think when i was in school studying spanish i i don't know spanish was another subject that i wasn't super super like into mm-hmm. but now when i'm when you're traveling you wish you wish you had studied more yeah you wish you <laughs> just worked harder at it you know wish i took some french now yeah me too but it's a different thing i think when you're in the country not in a classroom like when you're there and you're experiencing like yeah the motivation yeah right. it's right in front of you you yeah. have no choice because so. i want to communicate with these people but I, I have no idea how to say this you yeah. know some have some learning to do for but that it'll trip. be fun though and so what's going to happen in paris with you what are you going to do in paris just the, like where hemingway hung out and yeah i'm going to do some <laughs> some um some studying of those writers that went there and why they went there during that time. I think that's interesting that so yeah. many great artists went to Paris um, after World War One. I. I mean, you think about all the like p- painters, writers, uh, musicians that just like went to the same place. They all knew each other, like Picasso and Hemingway and um, Fitzgerald. Yeah, Morrison. Morrison. Yeah, I don't know. As in Jim Morrison. Okay. Yeah. Right. He's buried there. If I remember yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. He did. Go see his grave. It's true. It's a, what's in the? I can't remember the name of the cemetery. It's famous. It's uh, in the east side of town. Uh, anyway, you'll see it on the map. It's huge. And and more people, I think, are buried there too. Yeah. In addition, all the celebrities get get dug up in there. Yeah. Planted yeah. in there. People I should know, but yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, oh, you yeah. should be. It's interesting, and then a lot of um, after World War II, um, a lot of jazz guys went over to Europe and and um, to escape a lot of the racism that was happening down in, in our country, and so you've got a lot of great players like Lester Young and Dexter Gordon, and they all go to to Paris to 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 play their music, and uh, even further on, like uh, like that guy I mentioned, Eric Dolphy, made a lot more money touring Europe than he did in the States, you mm. know, because especially Scandinavia for some reason he did a lot of gigging and recording up there in Stockholm and um, Copenhagen. Um, but then, and then it's interesting afterwards, though, after the war, really New York became the center. You know, it kind of gravitated to, to this side of the Atlantic. Mm-hmm. And now, I, I don't know where you would call it. I think still, musically at least, New York is still a big hub, but now it's spread all over, right? Nashville for the country thing, or L.A. has a different sound, and... Um, it's not so centered. Maybe it's I don't know. Is it maybe it's the internet? Maybe it's allowing uh, us. I to feel like Austin, Texas, maybe Austin, is. Texas, another big hub. Yeah, you know, or Asheville, North Carolina, has become more. It's a little, maybe a smaller hub, but still a hub. Um, I'm sure you've been to Nashville. It's another I have. place I have not been. Oh man, you got to go. Yeah, I've always was amazed how. So I show up in Nashville. It's like a what is it? A Wednesday. Or something. No, it was a Sunday. It was a Sunday night. I go to Sunday night, and I go downtown to the Broadway, the main drag, and I walk into some honky-tonk, like Robert's Western Wear, I think they call the joint. I'd recommend it. And this awesome um, Western, like, uh, what, what do you call it? Like uh, driving music, almost like hillbilly music, but um, 
musicians that were phenomenal playing on a Sunday night, which would be the night that all the, the B-rated guys get to get to play. And I, I'm open Sunday night when no one's around, if you want to come play. And they, they were amazing. Yeah. So that's Sunday night. Who's Friday night? You know? <laughs> wow. Yeah, it was. Oh, it's. Yeah, there's no shortage of phenomenal musicians in the world. Yeah. And Nashville has a ton of them hanging out down there. Yeah, everywhere, I'm sure. Yeah, that's on the list. Yeah. yeah you yeah. should definitely go there. And there's a, I'll give you some recommendations when you, before you go. Um, what's the name? Station Inn. I guess, I think, actually, I think it was um, Henry. Henry Smythe hit me to the Station Inn. It's down in that area. Oh, what do they call it? Like the Gulch? Is that what it's called? Is it the Gulch? Something like that? And it's, it looks like a, a VFW hall. You know, and uh, they get like the top guys show up there out of the blue, and it's minimal um, fee to get in. But when you go there, they have only, only thing you can get to eat is pizza, pizza, and then what to drink? We got water, coke, or beer. <laughs> That's it. There's no other option. So when you go up there, so what's on the menu? The guy rolls his eyes. Pizza. This is your first time, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, oh, wow. but you sit around and you got these people that wander in later at night after they did a recording or something and you go, holy cow, I can't believe we're just sitting here for 10 bucks checking this out, you know? Yeah. Wow. So, yeah. So check that place out. So you're from Jersey. How did you, how did you find Baltimore? How'd you get down here? Well, um, so I had a young family at the time. Um, I guess when I moved here uh, 25 years ago, my, uh, kids were 11 and eight and, um, so I'm living in North Jersey, which is a pretty pricey place to live, right outside New York, and I uh, couldn't afford a, a place for us all and without like moving to like the Delaware Water Gap, like an hour commute to work, and I said, I'm not doing that. So I looked around, and uh, Baltimore is about a three-hour drive. My, my wife at the time and my family were living in that area. So it was three hours to get home to see the parents, see the family, so the kids could see grandma and grandpa. So it seemed right, and, and the, ho- the home, um, you know, the, the cost of homes down here were... Pfft. So you could buy a home in, back then, and this is the late 90s, for 150 grand, and a nice home, like three-bedroom home in Baltimore. But it would be twice that in New Jersey, at least the part of New Jersey where I was living. Mm-hmm. And I said, yeah, I guess let's, we're going to Baltimore. So that's how I ended up down here, to be honest. And how about finding Gilman? How'd you how'd you hear about Gilman you know, or kind the, of get in here? I had a a friend of mine at the time that who taught at um, where was he teaching then? Was he teaching at Garrison Forest, I think, or Park School, one of those two places? And he told me about um about Gilman, and then I um I dropped him. They happened to need a math teacher, so came on down. Here I am. Perfect. Still, they couldn't get rid of me. <laughs> Love it. Well, very fitting. Um, Dallas, thank you very much for hey, uh, Thanks coming so in. I yeah, it was a great conversation. It. it was fun hanging out with you. Yeah, you too. Yeah, you and too. Cesare over there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah. I appreciate it, and thanks for uh, thanks for taking the time. My pleasure. My pleasure. <laughs>